Welcome to Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on today's show, $43 million for electric school buses in Louisiana. It's coming from the EPA. We'll talk with the EPA about what they want to do with that money. And also we'll revisit a conversation about the LSU mounds in Baton Rouge. But first... In New Orleans, all eyes are on the Public Service Commission runoff on December 10th, but voters in other parts of the state are focused on three ballot amendments. To learn more about these amendments, we are joined by Capital Access reporter Paul Brown. Thanks for being here, Paul. Anytime, Adam. So let's start with a quick rundown of what these three amendments are that we're voting on on December 10th. Sure. Yeah. As you said, there are three proposed amendments uh, to the state constitution on this runoff ballot. In many parts of the state, these amendments will be the only thing on folks' ballots. Amendment one would reaffirm that only U.S. citizens can vote in state and local elections. Amendments two and three both have to do with the state Senate's role in confirming gubernatorial appointments on oversight panels, specifically the State Police Commission and the Civil Service Commission. It sounds pretty deep. So let's start with the first one. Do we really need a constitutional amendment to say that only citizens can vote? I would have thought that that was already settled. Yeah, Louisiana's constitution currently says that voting is open to anyone who is at least 18 years old and a citizen of the state. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have a Louisiana passport, and it's not like (laughs) folks have to pass a citizenship test when they move here from out of state. So does that leave the door open for non-citizens to vote? In short, no. Federal law already prohibits non-citizens from participating in any federal elections, and the state election code requires people who register to vote to attest that they are a citizen of the United States. It's literally the first question on the form. Hmm. Um, No municipality in Louisiana has tried to open local elections to non-citizens, so some people have argued that this amendment is a solution in search of a problem. But it is a direct response to efforts in other parts of the country to allow non-citizens to vote in some municipal elections. The most notable of these efforts was in New York City last year, where the city council passed legislation to open local elections to the more than 800,000 legal residents who live there who aren't U.S. citizens. And that law was struck down by a state Supreme Court justice back in June because it was incompatible with language in the New York Constitution. Language just like what this amendment would add to Louisiana's constitution if passed. I see. So let's talk now about amendments two and three, the Senate's confirmation of gubernatorial appointments to the State Police Commission and the Civil Service Commission. Is there any really difference between these two? Not a whole lot. I mean, yes, the State Civil Service Commission and the State Police Commission are two separate entities, but at at their core, these two ballot measures are asking really the same question. What role do you think the state Senate should have in overseeing the governor's appointments to these two boards that oversee state employees and state law enforcement? Um, How you would vote on Amendment 2 is probably how you're going to vote on Amendment 3, and the arguments for and against each are basically the same. The argument in favor is that state legislators as proxies for Louisiana citizens should be able to vet the governor's appointments to these boards. It's checks and balances. It's added accountability. And we already require Senate confirmation for all sorts of top level boards and commission appointments here in this state. Folks argue that it's especially important because we're talking about the people who handle disciplinary matters for law enforcement and other state employees. But on the other hand, you could argue that letting the Senate get involved could politicize what's supposed to be an apolitical process. 
And because these confirmations are held behind closed doors, the public wouldn't really gain any insight into the qualifications of these appointees. And in recent years, the few times we have seen senators object to gubernatorial appointments, they did so to settle personal political squabbles, not because they thought an appointee was unqualified. So is this confirmation process something that could have been established in statute instead of a full-on constitutional amendment? Probably so, but the Senate confirmation for other appointments has already been enshrined in our bloated state constitution, so here we are. (laughs) Paul, it seems like in recent memory we had a similar chat about amendments just a few weeks ago when we uh, voted uh, here in November in the midterms. Why is it that we're voting on another round of amendments? Yeah, I mean, between the midterms earlier this month and the runoff that we're in right now, voters will weigh weigh in on nearly a dozen proposed constitutional amendments. State election officials and some lawmakers thought that cramming 11 proposed amendments on folks' already crowded midterm ballot would be confusing, especially considering the arcane and frankly wonky tax and state finance questions that were in that first set of ballot amendments that we already voted on. Hmm. But we're going from a highly anticipated midterm election where control for Congress was up for grabs to a runoff where the highest profile race is for the state public service commission. Now, that's still an incredibly important office, and the race this year is perhaps the most interesting PSC race we've had in recent memory, but there's no doubt that turnout is going to be lower, and that means that a far smaller number of voters will decide the fate of these proposed amendments. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sit well with everybody. I talked with Ashley Shelton of the Power Coalition for Equity and Justice about this, and she said that the Secretary of State's decision to split the amendments and to reword the ballot language of the other proposals go beyond the even-handed administration of elections and really amounts to a political act in in her view. Hmm. Well, Capital Access reporter Paul Braun, thank you for your insight. Anytime. This is Louisiana Considered. Back in October, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, awarded more than $43 million in funding for electric school buses in Louisiana. That money was announced as part of President Joe Biden's bipartisan infrastructure law with the goal of providing school buses that produce zero emissions. Here to tell us more about how this plan will take shape in Louisiana, we have Jeffrey Robinson, who handles air permits, monitoring, and grants with the EPA in the South Central U.S., Jeff Robinson, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Sure, no problem. First off, can you tell me which parts of the state are seeing the focus with this grant? How many school buses will be purchased overall and how will they be distributed? Yeah, in Louisiana, there were uh, roughly uh, eight, uh, seven or eight school districts that were selected for rebate funding. Um it, it spread pretty well across the state. For example, you have uh, some school bus, electric school buses being funded in East Baton Rouge. Uh, you have some in Madison Parish, uh, some in uh, East or, or in the Monroe, uh, City Monroe School District, and also in uh, Rapids Parish as well. So it's, it's spread uh, across the state. You know, every school district obviously could apply for the number of buses that they were interested in replacing. And so that's uh, why you see some of the variability in dollar amounts just simply based on the number of buses that, uh, you know, were applied for by individual school districts. So what is it that dictated who got the school buses and what the geographic distribution was? Yeah, in in the uh, the program, EPA operated actually um, 
what I would term a, a lottery style selection process. And so the agency had a goal of obviously making sure the money was spread nationally. Um, and so um, we identified up front before we put the criteria out, or at least the rebate program out there, we put, put out up front along with that uh, announcement, at least priority school districts. And so we identified priority school districts nationally, you know, from the standpoint of being potentially underserved or uh, demographically, you know, being um, idea candidates to possibly, uh, you know, be able to get the program into. There's an environmental part to this, but let's talk about jobs too. White House advisor, infrastructure coordinator, and former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrew said that these buses will also be made in America, expanding job opportunities. Do we know about how many jobs this will create or where the manufacturing will happen? Yeah, the manufacturing in particular, you know, may, may be scattered in different parts of the country based on where different uh, bus manufacturers are located as far as their normal manufacturing operations. You know, it not only expands uh, the, the uh, what I would term the, the actual bus manufacturing piece of this um, to make, you know, electric buses or to make uh, propane or LNG uh, powered buses. It also expands and I think to, to a large degree helps enhance the uh, development of electric charging infrastructure. We just can't miss that one point is uh, most of these school districts that are uh, going to get this money, they also are getting uh, money to build out the charging infrastructure for those electric school buses. So that technology will continue to mature and, and develop. You know, so, you know, obviously when you're putting about 900, not a little over $900 million into that school bus manufacturing uh, process, it's obviously going to uh, create a fair number of jobs nationally. We're speaking with Jeff Robinson, who handles air permits, monitoring and grants with the EPA in the South Central U.S. We're talking about electric school buses that are coming to Louisiana. So tell me, in Louisiana, rural communities make up about 80% of the land mass, about 26% of the population, and about 1.3% of the population lives on tribal land. I know that the 2022 Clean School Bus Rebates Program says it will prioritize rural and tribal areas, but how might they do this while also overcoming the obstacles that rural districts face, for instance, longer bus commutes, more treacherous driving conditions? From the standpoint of developing uh, electric vehicle technology, especially in the uh, the bus aspect of this, that technology and really the battery te technology will continue to develop. Um, it's natural, I think, for some school districts, depending upon the uh, number of miles driven in a given day, you know, depending upon how far that distance. And we did hear this from some school districts, you know, that they na they had a natural uh, concern about. Uh, you know, how far can, can a bus go on a single charge? That technology uh, will continue to develop and, and mature. You know, we expect, obviously, that uh, buses will be able to go further and further. Um, but there are some school districts that did make decisions, you know, based on the, the number of miles traveled uh, on, on different routes or in a given day that they might not apply. 
You know, there's certainly the option of, of looking at whether uh, LNG or propane cleaner burning fuels would uh, serve that same uh, need. They are eligible for funding in the program. Um, and so certainly that's another option for school districts to consider in, in any future rounds of funding that the agency will make available. And it sounds like it's up to school districts themselves, individual school districts, to apply for these grants, to find out about them in the first place and take the initiative, seeing this as an option from the EPA. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's really up to them to apply for it. Um, you know, we certainly are doing outreach to school districts. We're doing outreach to uh, school administrator associations or school board associations. We're also doing outreach to elected representatives uh, who have been helpful, quite frankly, in getting the word out about the program. And um, and and we just hope to continue that and to continue to see uh, participation from school districts in Louisiana. So we've discussed how the Clean School Bus Program will look here in Louisiana. What's this look like in the rest of the country, the, the overall timeline for getting this off the ground? The, the Infrastructure Act is relatively recent news after all. Yeah, so the agency is looking at, uh, you know, its next funding cycle in 2023. Um, there is anticipation that we're going to uh, start or offer a, a grant program. The details are currently being worked on or developed for that grant program and what the eligibility criteria will be or, you know, who who might be eligible to apply in that grant program. The agency also anticipates in 2023 also, um, you know, having or, or starting um, the next round or cycle of, uh, of rebate applications as well. Obviously, the agency will look at the uh, first phase of rebate applications that uh, we requested in 2022, and we'll look at whether any tweaks need to be made for 2023, but uh, we expect to offer both programs in uh, 2023. So this will be a program that's perhaps almost on an annual basis. Yeah, for at least, uh, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law obviously uh, um, was put in place for five years and the agency uh, continues to or, or intends to continue uh awarding uh, those funds and uh, operating the program, obviously, as long as the, you know, congressional, as long as appropriations are put in place for us to do that, uh, mm -hmm. certainly over the next five years. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the big picture. Can you tell me about some of the end goals, the main goals for converting from diesel school buses to electric school buses? Tell me five years down the line, what do you hope to see in Louisiana and across the country? Yeah, in, in this case, uh, as a part of the program, at least in the 2022 rebate program, actually the school districts are required to replace those uh, diesel emitting buses. So really, you know, there's not this what I would call off ramp. The, the expectation is that when they get delivery of those new buses, um, let's say they're electric buses, that, that there will be a, an off ramp to move um, at least buses of a certain age, they'll be able to move those in some form or fashion. That might be to, you know, possibly uh, other underserved school districts, or it might be into, you know, potentially some other market. But uh, the, the biggest thing, and that was a part of the criteria, is the expectation is that those diesel emission buses that were being used by that district will, will leave that service from that school district and be replaced by an electric or LNG or propane bus. 
Jeffrey Robinson, who handles air permits monitoring and grants with the EPA in the South Central U.S. Thank you for your time today here on Louisiana Considered. Thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Standing out from the landscape on LSU's campus in Baton Rouge, visitors will find two earthen mounds. It's long been known that these mounds were built long ago by ancient indigenous people, but recent research sheds new light on just how old these structures are and why these mounds were built. In a study published in the American Journal of Science, our guest says that these mounds are the oldest man-made structures in the Americas. Brooks Elwood is a professor emeritus with LSU's Department of Geology and Geophysics. We spoke with him about the LSU mounds back in September. Today, we give that conversation a second listen. So first of all, let's get a basic introduction. What are these mounds on LSU's campus? Give us the 101, if you would. The 101? Okay. The the LSU campus mounds were built long ago, and there are two of them. One is a northern mound and the other one is a southern mound and it's right on the edge of the Pleistocene Lus Terrace. Terrace then on which the campus sits, most of it, was fairly resistant to erosion so it stands as a uh, elevated area that then kind of looks down onto the the valley, the Mississippi River Valley there. How much older are the mounds on LSU's campus compared to what we knew before? It's uh, difficult to really get a good age relationship because it's expensive, one, uh, to do dating, and two, um, there are a lot of people who are resistant to really knowing. They don't want to know. <laughs> I want to stop and ask just real quick, why wouldn't someone want to know how old an archaeological relic like this is? Uh, because there are no other uh, artifacts or, uh, I should say, uh, structures that were built and are still standing. There are no other that are anywhere near the age of both of these mounds that anyone is aware of, and that's why they're controversial. So it's merely that in the archaeological and the geologic community, this is controversial. This is a novel observation, and there aren't a lot of other observations. There aren't any other observations that date anything nearly this old in the continent. And a lot of times, scientists don't quite warm up to things that are outliers. Is that about right? Yeah, and the thing is, there are over 800 mounds in the state of Louisiana, and there are more in Mississippi, and there are many, many, many mounds all over the country, and very, very few have really been adequately dated. And so we don't have a lot of of information that we can compare to these mounds. Uh, but the, the LSU campus mounds that we have, the oldest states we have in them are a little bit older than 11,000 years. The northern mound is a bit younger, uh, so 11,000 versus uh, 9,000. So we already knew that these mounds were pretty old and that they had some sort of significance to the Native Americans. What do these new findings tell us that we didn't know before? well, that they're much, much older than anything that we're familiar with. And in the case of the bee mound, where we have really good dates, the base of the bee mound has a, about a foot thick layer of burn material. And the burn material primarily was reed and cane plants. And reed and cane plants, if you build a fire out of a lot of them, a lot of the brush, pile them up, 
you get a really, really, really hot fire. And so if you're talking about cooking meat, you wouldn't use a reed and cane fire because it would be too hot and it would destroy the meat. Rather, you'd use wood, which is what everybody does if you want to cook a, um, a meal over a fire. Mm -hmm. And so the difference is they're not trying to cook meat. They're doing something else. Now, they could just be burning it, or these could have been cremation fires. And the reason we think that's possible is because within these, we find the microscopic uh, building blocks of large mammal bone. Could have been a bison, or it could have been a human that was cremated there. But they certainly weren't burning these fires to cook a meal. Rick Selwood is with LSU's Department of Geology and Geophysics. We're speaking about the LSU mounds and just how old they are. Do you think this finding will lead other archaeologists to do more research and come to similar conclusions elsewhere in the Americas and perhaps find that some of the structures out there are older than previously thought? There are, uh, of course, many mounds, and there are many mounds that are national monuments or national seashore areas. Uh, up along the Mississippi in Iowa, there is a national monument called Effigy Mounds National Monument, where they built from shell mounds in the shape of animals. And hopefully, uh, for example, at uh, Poverty Point, there's a core there that actually looks like uh, the base of Mound B. And so it's up to state and national officials as to whether or not they're going to pursue any additional work on them. Hmm. So let's fast forward a little bit to the, the history and the present day of LSU. These mounds have played some sort of significance, some sort of role in campus life at LSU. Is that right? Well, they're unique. And uh, people for many, many years ran up and down them. And the problem with that is it causes a little bit of destruction to those mounds, especially the northern mound because there is standing water within that mound. That sediment is thixotropic in character. And what that means is, the example that everybody probably knows, is if you go down to the beach and you're standing on the sand and it's relatively dry, but you're fairly near the water, if you flap your foot up and down in the sediment, it'll liquefy underneath your foot. And if you've got 100 or 200 students jumping up and down, <laughs> On the, uh, the northern mound, the mound will liquefy uh, internally. And so the internal character of that mound is very chaotic. So, you know, the students used to sit atop these mounds and read or study or just picnic or just hang out. Now they're fenced off. Do you think that some sort of educational efforts, perhaps something interpretive at the location, would help make sure that the mounds are preserved and keep people off of them, all while making them more visually accessible without a big fence blocking the view? Yes. And in fact, there is a lot of effort afoot to really do that kind of preservation. There are groups that are meeting to try to decide what can be done, how can we best uh, preserve and protect the mounds and still have the ambiance of the site, as opposed to ugly green fences. Geoarchaeologist Brooks Elwood is a professor emeritus with LSU's Department of Geology and Geophysics. We've been talking about the LSU mounds and how we now have concluded that they are the oldest known human-made structures in the Americas. Thank you for your time today on Louisiana Considered. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the offer to visit. 
And that's been Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to our Capital Access reporter, Paul Braun, and Jeffrey Robinson from the EPA, and our guest from LSU Brooks, Elwood. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Thomas Walsh, and today's engineer is Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 in the evening. The show is available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Voss. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health. 